Let's pray. Holy God, we're reminded even as we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, that it matters where we fixate our gaze. Your word tells us that we become like that which we behold. And so it matters where we look. And I pray that for the next few moments, it would be our highest aspiration that we would look into the light and the glory of Christ. That we wouldn't settle for anything less than to behold the glory of Christ. God, I pray that the result of our time together today would be that we, in whatever we do, would seek to live and to die for the glory of Christ. And so allow us to behold him in and through your word. For that to happen, I'm convinced that the sermon that is heard will need to be far more effective than the one that will be preached. And so work among us, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In his commentary on the book of Exodus, Phil Riken quotes church historian Claire Davis describing the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. In other words, as we follow Christ, we keep needing to learn the same lessons over and over again because we keep forgetting them. And each time that happens, we suddenly remember, wait, I've heard this before. And we have to relearn the same very lessons that we have learned before. And it's because we are so forgetful that God reminds us often in and through his word to remember. Of all of the things that God wanted Israel to remember, the most important was their exodus from Egypt. This was a rescue to remember. This rescue was to ensure that his people would never forget their salvation. I'm guessing that's me. Check. All right, I will not move my head like that. All right, so I think we're going to be good. So of all of the things that God desires, see, you're thinking, I've already forgotten what he said. 
This was all planned to see if you remembered how I began this sermon. Of all of the things that God wanted Israel to remember, he wanted them to remember the Exodus, to never get over their deliverance. This rescue was one that was meant to be remembered. And so God would give his people special celebrations that would help serve to keep their memories afresh, aglow with these truths. But not just for their benefit that they would remember, but also for the benefit of future generations that they would know. I wonder what truths about your identity you're prone to forget. I wonder what truths about God have been eroded in your life. Maybe I just go with this. Check. All right. I wonder what truths about God may be eroded or have become eroded because of the circumstances in your life. God intends his work to be known and to be remembered by all, but even particularly by his people. And so over the last several months, we've walked alongside God's people through Moses' account of the events of the Exodus, of Israel's history. And it's helpful for us to remember why Moses is writing this account. Moses is writing to encourage a wearied and fearful people They're on the brink of walking into the promised land that God had committed to them, but they're fearful to do so because of what they see in the promised land. And so Moses is stopped looking at the promised land, and yet he's thinking, how can I bring this people to a place of courage? How can I strengthen their resolve to walk in what God has promised. How does he do that? He recounts God's faithfulness throughout the history of his people. Moses believed that this history would not just stir them up to remember, but it would compel them then forward in obedience. And so just as a recap, God had warned Pharaoh that an ominous day was coming. And he used nine signs and wonders, what we would call plagues, to call for Pharaoh's obedience, that Pharaoh would let God's covenant people go so that he may be served in the promised land. But God also used these signs and wonders in order to make known his power over all other powers, particularly the little g Egyptian gods. And so we could say that the book of Exodus, and we have said this, is the account of the God who makes himself known. The 10th plague that God would bring to bear would be the most devastating of all of the plagues. It was the death of every firstborn in the land who had not trusted God's word. And how did we know that someone in the land would have trusted God's word? Well, you could look on the the lintel and the post of the door to see whether or not the blood of an unblemished lamb was spread. On that fateful evening, an angel of death would come upon each home. And if there was blood, then the angel of death passed over that home. 
not bringing death, holding back that deadly blow. Why? Because a sacrifice for sin had been made. And then this is what we read. If you go back just a few verses, beginning in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up. Get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. If you've been with us, you remember Exodus chapter three, there was a great cry, but it was coming from the oppressed people In Exodus chapter 12, there is a great cry coming from the oppressors. Commentator John McKay noted that the starkness and the lack of sensationalism about these few verses make the impact of the events all the more effective. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to trace two truths that I believe will bring the focus of this passage into greater clarity. The first truth is we'll see God's careful eye upon his people. God's careful eye upon his people. And the second truth that we'll look at is his people's remembrance of their God. God's careful eye upon his people and his people's remembrance of their God. And the order of that makes all the difference. So first... God's careful eye upon his people. There's a theological truth that sits behind the Exodus. All the events of this night, this this evening of judgment for some, this evening of salvation for others. And if you look down in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, I believe this sums it up pretty well. And, And I prefer how the ESV reads here. The ESV reads it this way. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And so what we learn about this night, when the angel of death came and some were judged and some were spared, we learn that this was all owing to the watchful eye of the Lord. The watchful eye of the Lord revealed his love for his people because he would bring them out of Egypt. As one pastor would say, God was working the night shift for the sake of his people and their rescue. Psalm 121 verse 4, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Praise be to God, he is not like you and I. 
my mind even goes to the garden. And in the garden, literally hours before Jesus will be crucified, and he calls his disciples to be watchful and to pray. And they can't. And yet you and I know exactly what that's like. The weariness, our limitations, brings us to a place where we just, we have to turn in and sleep. Praise be to God, he is unlike us. He always looks to care for and to protect and to deliver his people. And I believe this first section beginning in 1229 through 42, I believe we have several evidences of the careful eye of the Lord upon his people. And so as we go through just a few of the ways the Lord's careful eye is upon his people, I want to, I want to encourage those of you who are Christians to just consider, consider the things that you have already forgotten about his careful eye watching over you. And if you're not a Christian, I would just, I'm thankful that you're here. I would just plead with you as you listen this morning that you would just consider the kind of love and care this God has that he would be this mindful and watchful over his people. And so several evidences of the careful eye upon the Lord. The first one is the Lord changes the heart of Pharaoh. The Lord changed the heart of Pharaoh. We see this in verses 31 and 32. And again, I think Phil Riken's helpful here. He says, these verses are so heavy with irony, they almost fall through the biblical page. What do we have in verses 31 and 32? We have this one who Exodus chapter 10, verse 28, is defiant and dismissive towards Moses, towards God, towards his people, towards the request. And here, what's he doing? He calls Moses and Aaron and says, okay, now I'm commanding you to go. This is the thing that Moses and Aaron had been pleading for. Let the people go. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And the Lord has so moved in using these signs and wonders to wrestle a man who thought he was most powerful to make him most submissive. And what's he doing? He's bringing his purposes to pass. And now this Pharaoh, who once said, I will not let the people go, is commanding them to leave just as they have requested. And it's interesting, if you read this, you get to the end of verse 32, and he's like, take everything with you and bless me also. Right, and we're reading this, and perhaps you're thinking, man, did, did he come around? Like, is this a sign of a change of heart that he's ready to submit? To be clear, this isn't a heart change. This isn't a turn to the Lord in faith. Because what the Bible tells us in the subsequent pages is that when that type of heart change happens, what you ask for isn't, Lord, give me blessing, you first ask, Lord, forgive me. You see, Pharaoh wanted the blessing without the repentance. Pharaoh wanted the reward without 
the repentance. God bless me, but I will not conform to your will or to your ways. You see, what Pharaoh wanted more than anything else was his comfort. And as long as there was discomfort, as long as there were signs and wonders and things that were afflicting them, Pharaoh would say anything in order to get out of that. You see, Pharaoh was trying to use God in order to get a greater end. And God all along has said, I'm not to be used for something greater. I am the something greater. And so he desires comfort. Come back next week and you will see an evidence of this because once the immediate and the initial shock of losing the firstborn in his home subsides, what's he do? He decides to pursue God's people to seeking to destroy them. This wasn't a change of heart. But there's a lesson for you and I in here as well. God doesn't bless a man or a woman or a child who will not turn from their sin. And so said another way, especially if you're a follower of Christ, if you are banking on God's blessing to come to you, and yet you are treasuring your sin, you are actively working against the thing you say you want. And, and praise be to God, it's not that you have to be perfect in order to receive his blessing, but you have to be willing to let go of your sin to be willing to bow your knee in submission. But not just he changed the heart of Pharaoh. Look again, he changes the heart of the Egyptians. Verse 33. Now the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. These are the ones who are being used now by God to get them out of the land quickly. These were the ones who were being the oppressors, carrying out Pharaoh's rule. And now they're urging God's people to leave. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls and bound it up in the cloths on their shoulders. Verse 34 helps us just capture the hurried nature of their departure. They didn't have time to make their food for the road. But they were prepared. The Lord had told them earlier. This isn't going to be a time to put leaven in the bread and wait for it to rise. And no, this is going to be a quick departure. And they're ready when the Lord tells them to go. So they load up their kneading bowls before the bread was leavened. They throw it in the cloth and they put the cloth over their shoulder and they head out. Right? What do you call that? The original fast food. Notice, lastly, not just he changed the heart of Pharaoh, not just he changed the heart of the Egyptians. Notice, lastly, what do we see? His careful eye is seen as he keeps his promises to his people. Listen, 35 and 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptian Egyptians, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I mean, the irony is so thick here. If we go back all the way to Exodus chapter two, verse 24, we're confronted with this truth. 
that God does not forget the promises that he has made. And the book of Exodus, I mean, the, the scriptures are just again and again and again. Do you remember this promise? He's faithful to keep it. Every promise that he made in the Old Testament, the New Testament says they are yes and amen in Christ. He has made all these promises. He's kept every one of them. What are the promises? Promises like Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. What do we read? I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land. Promises like Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their, their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. We could keep going. All throughout this Exodus account, that's what we're finding. God continually promised that Israel would be rescued from Egypt. And this Exodus is showing he makes good on all of his promises, even though it seemed dark and dreary at times. Whether or not God was going to come through wasn't contingent on how clear the plan would be. It wasn't contingent on how easy the circumstances would be. God has proven his ability again and again to keep his word. And for the rest of their lives, this moment of deliverance would be the rallying cry for these people to trust their God. I wonder this morning, if you really believe that every promise that he has made, he will keep. Exodus chapter 3, 21 and 22, it's almost verbatim of what happens here in Exodus chapter 12. We read, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of clothing and articles of gold, or articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Right, The picture that comes to my mind is what happens when my girls were little and they would come and they would just put on my clothes. They were just walking. They couldn't even walk around. The, the clothes were just... And, and the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to load you up with everything that you need. And you're going to load your kids up. And they're just going to be outfitted, weighed down with all of the silver and the gold and the clothing. This isn't just, Exodus chapter 12 is not just a promise kept from Exodus chapter 3. It's actually a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. But I also will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. How in the world will a slave, an enslaved people who have nothing, how will they come out with many possessions? Because the Lord will change the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they will do exactly what the Lord promised. God promises Abraham that after the years of captivity, 
that the people would be brought out of Egypt not, having empty, uh, not being empty-handed. And, and the text tells us that they will, it, it's as if they plundered the Egyptians. That's a, that's a wartime victory language, uh, terminology. The idea is that, wait a minute, these enslaved people are now walking as though they've just been victorious in battle? They leave with silver. They leave with gold. And they leave with the finest, 500 count. Egypt. Exodus chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. For a people who had nothing, they would leave. And they would also have enough, not just to get to where they were going, but along the way, they would have enough to build a tabernacle. The overwhelming generosity of the Lord here is meant to stun us just like they were stunned. Like a victorious army, they leave Egypt. Numbers chapter 33 paints it this way. It, it's, it's Moses giving us a little bit more detail that they exited while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. The people began to leave. The Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. And, and again, the picture if you're a follower of Jesus, you should know something familiar about that picture, about a people who didn't lift a finger, who were actually enslaved, had no freedoms, had no way to get out of the enslavement, and they leave, they're set free, and they're not just set free, they're set free with an abundance because of the provision of their God. This is how God's people today live. They receive the victory that God accomplishes and applies to them. The merit of the work of God brings rewards to those who believe. The type of rewards that could never have been achieved on our own. If you're a follower of Jesus and you see this picture of a once oppressed people leaving in not just freedom, but in an abundance of provision from God, this is meant to make you almost look in a mirror and go, that is me by faith. This God has kept every promise. Verse 37, we're then given the account. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakahoth about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them along with the flocks and the herds, a very large number of livestock. <coughs> Ramses was near the area of Goshen in which Israel had been allotted in Genesis chapter 47. And what's crazy is that 70 people went into Egypt and through some of the most intense suffering and affliction, do you know what God's people have done? They've prospered and they've multiplied. Some 600,000 men, scholars would say, add women, children, you're looking at possibly 2 million plus 
What we're meant to, to realize whenever we hear this, 70 people went in. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham? I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a great nation. And again, if you just look at the plan, you're like, this is a promise to a, a, an aging man who has no children. And he takes some of his lineage, only a few of them, and he puts them in what seems to be a place where they're going to prosper, only then to become slaves. And you're thinking, there's no way they will prosper. And year after year after year, the Lord has been faithful to bring about a great nation. But we read there's also a mixed multitude. There were some that weren't just ethnic Israel. There were some who came to be a part of God's people by faith, not by their birth. And so the picture you have is this ethnically diverse, different nations and different ethnicities are beginning to, to head out of Egypt. And potentially, I, 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 my sanctified imagination, I can't help but think, I wonder if there were any magicians who once looked at Pharaoh and said, we can't compete with this. Or maybe there were some who, when the Lord promised devastating uh, hailstorm, there were some who did bring all of their servants and animals because they did believe the word of the Lord. Again, this is another fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse three. The promise to Abram that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we're seeing God has preserved a people and he's made a way for some that weren't ethnically his people to become his people. And so the mixed multitude make their way out of Egypt. And this must have been an incomprehensible and indescribable sight to behold. The population of Tampa, Florida is estimated to be near 400,000 people. Imagine every resident of Tampa heading to I-4 and beginning to make our way south. Now, only add 1.6 million to that number. The exodus is underway. It's staggering. At no point are you looking at this and saying, man, Moses is a genius. I mean, everyone is looking at this and saying, Moses' God is unrivaled. That's the story. God has watched over his people and fulfilled every promise he made to Moses. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Moses, your offspring will be sojourners. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, the watchful eyes of the Lord are never closed. I wonder this morning if you realize that the essence and the basis of the Christian faith the hope for salvation that you can have really is based upon this, God's ability to keep his promises. When you place your faith in Christ, you know what you're banking on? You're banking on your eternal destiny being a certain verdict because of Romans 8.1. That there's now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You're banking on your salvation being secure because of John 1.12. 
to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so when you think about it, believing in the promises of God, that's the starting point for the Christian life. But church, we would be foolish to think that that's also not how we grow at every turn in the Christian life. We don't graduate from from believing and remembering the promises of God. No, this is how we live in the Christian life day by day. We continue believing that all things are being worked together for our good, Romans 8, 28. We believe that his mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. We believe that there isn't a temptation that will overwhelm or crush us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We do believe that his grace is always sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We believe that there's no use for worrying because God loves us, Matthew chapter 6. We believe that there's never too much trouble in one day, Matthew 6, 34. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, continue believing in the promises of God. The very way that you started your faith will be the way by his grace that you get to the end. Keep believing his promises. And Church, when you do, your faith will give way to sight. You will behold not just letters on his inspired, uh, in his inspired scriptures, thinking, yes, yes, I want to believe, I want to believe. You will behold the one whom you have been trusting in. And along the way, as you continue to trust and believe in his promises, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Continue. Continue believing the promises of God. Brings us to our second truth. Second truth in this passage, his people's eye upon their God. His people's eye upon their God. Douglas Stewart says, commentator Douglas Stewart says, God paid special attention to the people that night. And in response, his people in all future generations are expected to pay special attention to him. The remaining portion of our passage this morning covers three overlapping observances. And these observances would be, were instituted to be a help to a forgetful people. We have the Passover meal, which you heard read this morning. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which John hit on three weeks ago. And we have the consecration or the setting aside of the firstborn. And each of these were not just, hey, these are boxes that you need to check. If you're going to be his people, then make sure you you observe Passover. Make sure you observe not just Passover meal. Make sure you observe Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And also make sure you consecrate the firstborn. Just check those boxes and you're good. No, no, these were not boxes to be checked. They were were celebrations that were intended to help us remember. And so let's consider each one, the Passover meal. This was a yearly reminder of the way that God brought his people out of Egypt. Passover tells the story of God's salvation. And it's a story of God's salvation from death. What was it that the firstborns were spared from in the Passover? The angel of death. 
And so as we think about the Passover, it's this celebration of how God delivered his people from death, the firstborn from death. As John reminded us a few weeks ago, Passover was both a memorial, it was Memorial Day as well as New Year's Day. And verse 42 reminds us that this was a corporate celebration that was centered around a meal. And the meal would help both unite God's people into one. And what's interesting in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through 49, what do you have? You have the Lord fencing the covenant meal of his covenant people. There's going to be parallels. We'll get to those in a moment. But perhaps you've thought, why in the world, when covenant life observes the Lord's Supper, why is it that they seem to put a fence around who can take this meal? Because this is what the Lord has been doing since Exodus. He's been seeking to fence his covenant meal to ensure that only his covenant people partake. And really, what's, what's this meal, what's this Passover meal highlight? It highlights two things. His people's distinction from the world and their unity. Distinction from the world and their unity. And what's clear in verses 43 through 49 is that this meal was for the people of God. It wasn't for outsiders. Foreigners and hired workers, they weren't to eat this meal. Not because they were the wrong ethnicity, but because they weren't members of God's covenant community. And the way in which the Lord brought about entrance into the covenant community was through circumcision. And it wasn't just merely circumcision for circumcision's sake. It was belief in God's word that was evidenced through circumcision. And so what do we have? We have the Lord in 43 through 49 saying, this meal is not to be partaken by everybody. This, this meal that celebrates the salvation of the Passover lamb shouldn't be taken by those who haven't experienced the salvation of the Passover lamb. And so that was the distinction. There was a clear distinction between who was to take it and who wasn't. Those who were in the covenant community and those who were not. But this meal was also intended to highlight unity to highlight the oneness of his people. You, you just go through the list. What do you find? There's one lamb per house, meaning that others would gather, they would share the meal together, they would believe. There was no part of the lamb that could be taken home. There was nothing private. It's nothing that, hey, uh, you make the sacrifice, you do all the believing, cook up the meal, give me some, I'll swing by and pick it up and I'll just go home and eat it. No, this meal was meant to bring his people together. They were to evidence their faith together. There's this part about no broken bones of the lamb. Scholars aren't sure what that means for the actual Passover celebration, but all scholars are clear about what John said it meant, John chapter 19, that when they didn't break the legs of Jesus... That was a fulfillment of this. Again, making clear all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament are pointing to the greater glorious reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
and all were to participate. If you belong to God, then you observed the Passover. And again, just hearing this, you may be tempted to go, wait a minute, there's the cup and the bread that's laid out this morning. Sounds pretty similar with some big differences, but there are some similarities to this new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. And I believe there is. We're meant to see both the discontinuity of the Passover into the Lord's Supper, but I think we're also meant to see the continuity. There's a distinction. It's not the same. In fact, prior to his, jet, uh, to his death, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal. And Jesus transformed all of the symbolism, the bread that once centered on the hasty departure from Exodus, there was something better that it pointed to. Not just we got to get out quick, but there was a body that was broken so that new covenant people might have forgiveness of sins. The cup that once centered on God's redemption from Egypt now symbolizes the new covenant of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And again, John chapter 19, verse 36, John understands bones not broken. This is all pointing to Jesus. The Passover meal pointing to the supper because what is on display most prominently in the supper? The work of Jesus. It all centers on Jesus. Christ is the point. And so the Lord's Supper then, it's also a meal that's meant to be exclusive. It's exclusive to those who've turned from their sin and placed their faith in the work of Christ alone. And those who, who did, in the same way that circumcision would be the, the initiatory right into the covenant people, so too in the New Testament, not if you were born in the right ethnicity, but by faith, if you come to believe, turn from your sin, trust in the work of Christ alone, then the initiatory right to be numbered among his people is the ordinance of baptism. And so then those who have been baptized, publicly identified with Christ, they are the ones who continue to observe the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, much like the Passover, is intended to help Christians, not just Israel, not forget the work of their deliverance. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes about this over and over. What does he write about? When you come together and partake together, as you come together, when you come together, the point of this meal is to put on display our distinction from the world and our unity in Christ. And if we believe that, then maybe you begin to understand a little bit more how we at Covenant Life, in seeking not to keep anyone from Christ, but in seeking to ensure that those who do partake are partaking not judgment on themselves, but being able to be nourished by the blessing that is to flow from this meal. Maybe you begin to understand a little bit more, ah, that's why we say baptized Christian. Ah, that's why we say a member 
in another local church or in a local church that preaches this gospel message. Because it's not just self-proclamation. Yep, I belong to him. Just like foreigners coming in, God's people. It's not just, hey, yep, I belong with him. It's no, 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 no. Has that been confirmed by identifying with his people publicly? And so the goal is unity amidst our diversity. That was the goal in God's people as they gathered around and observed the Passover. It's the goal for us that there would be unity amidst our diversity. Not diversity simply to say, look at our differences, but a diversity that says, hey, we share one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father. And so not only do you have the reminder of the Passover, you have the reminder of the feast of the unleavened bread. And if the Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance from death, then the feast of the unleavened bread was the celebration of God's deliverance from slavery. And you'll notice again, chapter 13, verses three through 10. How is it that God's people left Egypt by the mighty hand of God? This is what Lig Duncan said in your med for prep this week, meditation for preparation. I pray that you're using it to prepare your heart. The powerful hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. And so again, as they're leaving, it's not, Moses, you were great. Aaron, you did a good job. It's no, the Lord has worked on behalf of his people. And as they observed that, they were to not eat leaven, only unleavened bread for seven days. And so the Lord is giving his people a concrete way of remembering and expressing what he has done by depriving themselves of what they would normally have, leaven. And they're remembering the bread of haste that they had to make in the wake of how God would deliver them from slavery. And that's just to permeate the whole way that they looked at the world. They were to look at the world as we are now redeemed. That's the whole point of this rite. That we would remember that we are redeemed and that colors everything. Verses, uh, in verse nine, it says, this shall serve as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your foreheads. And some of the second temple Jews actually started the practice of wearing these scriptures on their hand and on their forehead. But that wasn't the point. The point was that this remembrance would be so pervasive that everywhere we looked, we were just reminded again and again and again at our experience of redemption. He brought us out of this and that changes everything. Leads us to the last, the, the, the consecration, the setting apart of the firstborn male in verses 11 through 16. The firstborn male was to be set apart. It was to be given unto the Lord, both human and animal. And I think you can immediately see the connection with the Passover. God sent the destroyer, the angel of the Lord, to strike down the firstborn male among the people. The firstborn belonged to God. In this culture, the firstborn had special rights and responsibilities and privileges. The firstborn was sort of a representation of the whole family. And so the firstborn was this symbolized, the symbolism of saying the family belongs to the Lord. 
I hope you can see, maybe parents, some of you, even with a twinge of sadness, how this would have reinforced to these parents, these children aren't yours. They're the Lord's. Of course, he's given them to you and you love them. God gives them to you, parents, for a time. But through this, we're reminded that, no, they're really his. In a couple of weeks, we will have an opportunity to do a parent-child church dedication. And that's not like a Baptist form of baptism. We're not making any statements about the salvation other than every one of these children that are being presented are in need of it. But it is this reminder, parents, that you have been entrusted with a precious stewardship. It's a reminder, church, that you, we have been entrusted with a precious stewardship of keeping these remembrances before our children. Right? The picture is just, okay, wait a minute. Why do we do this? Well, we do this because we remember what God did for us. And it was this catechizing, this teaching of the children. There's this aspect of dedication. We see this, what Hannah does to her son, Samuel. But there's also this aspect of discipleship. This consecration of the firstborn. We are to pass on to the next generation the wonders of God. And so over dinner that week, you should have been hearing, uh, you would have possibly heard, why are we eating crackers? Why are we doing Sister Schubert's? The yeast rolls? Okay. Kids, I would encourage you, ask your parents the questions that you have about the Christian faith. And parents, I would encourage you Tell the story of God's salvation. Pass that on. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, the Shema, the hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then teach your children to do the same. Something beautiful, something God-ordained about his design for truths of his word reverberating in homes, parents to children, children to one another, children to parents. And that's what these celebrations were centered around. And so parents, don't neglect the special privilege you have, but not just parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, Set aside a portion of time and tell the next generation what God has done. This is our privilege. This isn't a burden. This is our privilege. Make sure your family and your church family knows your testimony. Tell them the wonders of your God. Perhaps you're sitting through all of this and you're thinking, that sounds good for the Christian, but... 
But that's not me. I, just, I, I pray that you have seen this passage is just dripping with the promises of the goodness of God, the salvation that he provides for his people. And you may think, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm pretty messed up. I just want to encourage you, there's more mercy in him than sin in you. The mixed multitude means that there were some who didn't have the upbringing that Israel did. But they were able to be a part. How? By faith in the words of God, leading to then obedience. Faith in the words leading to obedience. There's something that happens here in this story where the greatest threat to Israel before the Passover is Pharaoh. And then you realize that in the Passover, the greatest threat to Israel is not Pharaoh. It's God himself. It's the holy God who says, I will, I will give judgment to all who deserve it. For, to all who sin, there is judgment that is rightly earned and God being holy and just must execute it. Someone has to be judged and yet God provided provision through a lamb, an unblemished lamb. Blood needed to be spilled. It could be a substitutionary lamb. And what do we find? We find that when God's people leave Egypt, it's not that they left all the sin in Egypt. No, we realize that their hearts are sinful. They want to do what they want to do. They want to do it on their own terms. The very seed of all of the sin that was in Pharaoh is also in them. And the Bible says that it's not just this Old Testament Pharaoh and Israel thing. It's an every human thing coming from a fall that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Someone must die for there to be forgiveness of sins. Where sin is, death is. Death is God's chosen response to our sin. Think about that. We want our sin and we don't want God. Carried to its logical conclusion, we are saying, give us death and not life. And so if you're still in your sin, unwilling to turn from it, that is what you are saying. You're willing to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with God and treat your life as though it's your own. And death exposes the pretense of pride because death shows us the very thing that we insist is ours is not ours. Death will take it from us. Oh, then what unfathomable joys then to belong to one who holds the keys to death and sin in his hand. Praise be to God, you can, because of Jesus the Christ. Sinless life, the one that you can't live, but are expected to live. Substitutionary death, not of a little lamb, but of a perfect Savior, Jesus the Christ. Absorbing the wrath of God, protecting those that are deserving of it, but God absorbs it. Jesus, uh, God in the form of Jesus the Christ absorbs the wrath of the Father removing 
all penalty. And then victoriously, third day, raising from the dead, showing that death doesn't get the last word. And the Bible says that all who turn from sin and trust in him alone, you can know the loving embrace of this good and gracious father. Don't rob God of his glory by trying to cover up your sin. Let him prove to you that he's great and gracious. On that night, no one was, no one was passed over where there wasn't a going under the blood. I wonder if the angel of if the angel of death were to come again tonight, I wonder if you would be spared. Good news. You can be. And other good news, if you have been, he's given us ordinary means of grace to remind us of what we're so quickly prone to forget.